0: Let us pray. Lord, now may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to follow up a little bit on what Katie's already talked about this morning. I was listening to her before and I thought, well, she basically took the first half of my sermon, which was okay. Uh, so it's good to be, have it reemphasized. I want to begin by giving you a little bit of a lesson in Greek and Hebrew to reinforce again what the meaning of the word Hosanna literally means. It says it in three different places in the New Testament, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest, or simply Hosanna. Now, I think most of you know that the New Testament part of our Bible was written in Greek and the Old Testament, which was written written first, was written in Hebrew. Now, whenever the word Hosanna occurs in the New Testament, anybody have any idea what the Greek word is for Hosanna in the Greek? Is Hosanna. You should have all known that. All English translations did was to use the English letters H-O-S-A-N-N-A to make the sound of a Greek word. But interesting enough, if you go to a Greek dictionary and you hunt up the meaning of the word hosanna, you find out that it's not a Greek word after all. The writers of the New Testament did the same thing to a, to a Hebrew word that our English translators did to the Greek. They used Greek letters to make the sound of a Hebrew phrase. Now, our English word hosanna comes from a Greek word hosanna, which comes from a Hebrew phrase hoshiyana hoshi'ana and that hebrew phrase is only found in one place in the old testament in psalm 118 verse 5 where it says help save me in other words na. but something has happened to that phrase na, over the years now in the psalm when it says na, mean help save me it's immediately followed by the words Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what happened over the years is that the word Hoshiya Na stopped being a cry for help and instead became a shout of hope, a shout of joy and celebration. It used to mean, Save me It'd be like if somebody pushed you off a diving board into the deep water and you couldn't have suck you couldn't have Swum, you would have said, na Well, in Texas you probably would have shouted, You know, where's Wayne? Hit me, hit me. You know, save me, help, help. But gradually it took on a new meaning, which would be as you came up out of the water and you saw the lifeguard coming to you, you'd have shouted, Hoshiah nah, which meant, Salvation is on the way. It's the bubbling over of a heart that uses that that sees hope and joy and salvation on the way, and it just can't keep it on the inside. So when we sing or we say, Hosanna, it really means, hooray for salvation! It's coming! Indeed, it's here. And when we say, Hosanna to the Son of David, what we're really saying is, the Son of David is our salvation. And when the angels sang, Hosanna in the highest, it means let all of the angels in heaven sing their praise. Because salvation is here, let heaven sing the salvation song. Now, with that as your Greek and Hebrew lesson for the day, let's go back to our text. And I want to start again with these words where it says, And as He approached Bethphage, or Bethphage and Bethlehem at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sends two of His disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter... You're going to find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just tell him, the Lord needs it. Now, I don't know about you, but if I would have been one of the two disciples, I would have probably asked that Lutheran question, what does this mean? They probably wondered why Jesus would tell them to do that, because nowhere in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, Do you ever hear any mention of Jesus riding any animal to get from one place to another place? Now, some of you might say, well, what about the Christmas story when he was inside of Mary and she was on the back of a donkey and walked several hundred miles the day before she gave birth? I'll go back and read your Bibles. That's not in there. Never rode an animal, at least that we know of. Now, he must have walked hundreds of miles back and forth across what we know as the Holy Land. But there is no mention of him ever riding anything except a boat across the Sea of Galilee. But now he gives this rather unusual or maybe even weird command to go into a village to get this colt that's never been ridden, bring it to him. And he even tells them the exact words that they are supposed to use. The Lord Needs it. Now, I don't know what any of you who have animals would think. If somebody arrived, Tommy, for example, at your ranch, and said, I want that cow, and you go, what? And the person said, the Lord needs it. You'd go, okie dokie. That might not be our initial reaction today. Now, you wonder, was this prearranged? I mean, did the owners know already what Jesus was going to do? Well, I really don't know the answer to that, but it's obvious that Jesus knew what he was now going to face in Jerusalem, and his decision to go to Jerusalem must have been one of the most difficult decisions he had ever made, and on top of that, he was going to ride into the city on a colt rather than walk into the city like he had always done, and it must have been an even more difficult decision because riding that colt into the city was announcing that he was a king. Now, 500 years before, as Matt read those verses before, the prophet Zechariah had said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you lived back in the days of Jesus and you saw this, you would have known immediately what was happening here. Because in times of war, the king or the conquerors would ride into the city on chariots or on big white prancing stallions. But in times of peace, if the king entered the city, he would always come in riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on this colt that day is to say, I am the king, and I am the king of peace. Now, there's a Hebrew word for king also. It's prince. I am the prince of peace. That was his announcement that day. Now, of course, this was also the beginning of an eight-day celebration. It was the eight-day celebration of the Passover uh, Jews were all gathering from all over the known world at this time to celebrate the deliverance of God, or the deliverance by God of his people from Egypt. And so obviously, Jesus was not the only one walking into Jerusalem that day. I mean, think about it. Pontius Pilate was already there. He was already at the Praetorium with his whole bunch of armed Roman soldiers uh, watching out in case somebody would try to have some overthrow of the Roman government. Herod Antipas, he was known as the Tetrarch or the ruler or king of Galilee and Perea. He's the one who had beheaded John the Baptist, uh, had also arrived probably days before with a lot of pomp and circumstance, obviously occupying the palace of his father, Herod the Great. There's a lot of power, a lot of pageantry that week, and now comes Jesus fulfilling this prophecy of Zechariah, riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the question is, how would people respond to that? And I really don't have an outline, but you'll see some questions up there. How would they respond? Would they recognize immediately that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world, that it was a spiritual kingdom and that he was going to be a spiritual king? I say fat chance. (laughs) I say small chance. Because he had been teaching them, over and over for three years, and they still had not learned the lesson. I have a feeling that there were some people that day probably laughed at him when he came in. I mean, they would have been kind of amused that Jesus was doing this. I mean, after all, what a ridiculous picture. A common carpenter riding into town on a donkey claiming to be the king of peace. I have a feeling there were a few people in the crowd that day who said, this guy's nuts. I mean, living in a world of fantasy. I mean, who does he think he is that he could be king? I have a feeling there were probably some other people in the crowd that were pretty angry. They were upset. Because they interpreted his writing into Jerusalem as arrogance. They interpreted it as being blasphemy about, against God. How dare he claim to be our Messiah? But then again, there are obviously lots of people who greeted him with joy that day. They were ready and eager to put a crown on his head. They wanted him to come and reestablish that kingdom of David. As Katie suggested before, to probably overthrow that Roman government. Now, among that crowd that day, people that have been happy, it had been interesting to see who was there. Probably people that he'd healed. I mean, maybe some of the thousands of people that Jesus had fed with loaves and fishes or people who had seen the many miracles that Jesus had done or listened as the Scripture said He spoke with authority. I mean, they'd listened and their lives had been changed. Now, Jesus knew all of this. And yet, at the same time, He knew that just over the horizon was a cross, kind of looming like a monster ready to consume Him. But yet, even knowing what he would face in a few days from Palm Sunday, the Bible says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The Gospel said he turned his face and he set his face toward Jerusalem. Nothing was going to deter him from going in. So The next thought we want to think about it, is so Jesus rides to the city gate. I mean, picture this now. As he does, the crowd begins to grow. I mean, it's Passover; thousands upon thousands of people flocking to Jerusalem from near and far for the greatest of all Jewish holidays. Now, even before he gets there, there's a story that has begun to spread. I don't know if you remember what happened shortly before this. He had he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Can you imagine the crowd that day, you know, talking about it? Have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? I mean, Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. He was in the grave so long he was beginning to rot. He began to stink already. And, and Jesus comes along and just says, Lazarus, come forth. And, and out he came. And, and and I saw him. And I helped take the grave clothes off of him. And, and, and today I've seen him. Lazarus walks and talks and breathes and, and lives again. I mean, surely only... The Messiah could do something like that. And maybe as that news of raising somebody from the dead begins to tra- uh, travel from one person to another, until finally when Jesus is about ready to enter that city of Jerusalem, there are great crowds there. They had thrown their cloaks down on the ground, and they cut palm branches, and they're already shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. I mean, the excitement in the city. And Jesus looked over that crowd, and even as I do on a Sunday morning, and I see, what I do, I see different expressions. Can you imagine Jesus looking over that crowd and the looks on the faces of the people that day? There were people there who loved him. I mean, maybe Bartimaeus was there. Remember him? Blind Bartimaeus who could now see. Maybe somewhere in the crowd, maybe up on a little tree was Zacchaeus whose life had changed when he had given the money back and committed his life to Jesus. Or maybe in the crowd were those ten lepers whose skin was now clean and pure and they were rejoicing at the healing they'd received. Maybe Jairus' daughter was there. Wouldn't it be cool if she'd been standing next to Lazarus, two people that Jesus had raised from the dead, and say, he did it. Maybe Lazarus. Mary and Martha were there. I mean, their lives reflected the love that they had in their heart for this guy who taught them and molded them, who befriended them and helped them. But, you know, there were other faces in that crowd. They were sinister faces. You know, those squinty-eyed faces. People were just waiting for Jesus to do one wrong thing. To say one wrong thing. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were probably there too. I mean, they were the ones who told Jesus, "Could you quiet down the crowd?" I love Jesus' comment. Hey, if they didn't make make noise, the rocks would cry out. I always say that proves rock music is okay. Well, not really. Well, maybe so. But see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees at one time were very popular. But suddenly their popularity was going down as the popularity of Jesus was going up. And so with great jealousy, they stood there and they watched him. And in the background were these Romans, maybe the hand on a sword or a knife, on a spear. They were waiting for any sign of rebellion so that they could go out ruthlessly and slaughter people. Now, Jesus realized that these voices who were shouting Hosanna would soon have the sinister voices drown out the cries with Crucify Him. Or maybe those people would just be standing there not saying anything at all. It says that Jesus now began descending the Mount of Olives. He's heading down to the Kidron Brook where then he will make an uphill turn towards the Temple Mount. Do you ever wonder what the disciples might have been thinking as this was all happening? I kind of think Judas was pretty excited that day. I think Judas kind of basked in the glory of this and and suddenly maybe thought, man, the earthly kingdom that I so much want to be a part of is finally going to take place. How about Peter? I can picture Peter. Strutting in the town, chest puffed out, looking at the crowd, looking at the cheers and say, you know, giving up the fishing business seems like a pretty good deal now. Maybe at last we're going to get what we deserve. How about Thomas? Looking around, a little bit skeptical about everything going on. Kind of wondering what was going to happen next. How about Andrew? Andrew? Maybe Andrew thought, man, I don't even know what to make of this, because I'm only used to bringing people to Jesus one at a time. (laughs) Look at all these people. How about James and John? Oh, the sons of thunder. Suppose they were thinking about Jesus being crowd king, and they get to sit on one side or the other. See, they were all there, loving faces, sinister faces, anxious disciples, crowds trampling on each other, when suddenly... The parade stopped. Suddenly, the whole procession stopped. That's our next little point. A week or so ago, Nancy and I were coming back from our new home in North Richland Hills. It took us about an hour and a half to get from North Richland Hills just to Rockwall, Texas. Normally, it takes us about 30 minutes or so. But somewhere along that parade of cars... Somebody stopped for one reason or another. And when one stops, another one stops, then you got all the gawkers and the gapers. And you got all this other stuff until finally you kind of just sit dead in the traffic. You ever had that happen to you? And you're sitting there and you're kind of going, I wonder what's happening. What's the holdup? What's going on? Is there an accident? Can you see any flashing lights? Oh, Oh, please, honey, don't get out of the car and look. You know, all those conversations. But see, the people who were closest to Jesus could see what was happening. And they realized that it was he who had stopped the parade. And then they began to see Jesus' body kind of shake. Maybe at first they thought he was laughing. I mean, after all, it was a pretty happy day. But then they suddenly realized that he wasn't laughing. Jesus was crying. He had sorrow and tears running down his face. Now, the Bible says that Jesus got pretty emotional at times. It said that he looked on people with compassion. I mean, different times it said Jesus had compassion on the poor. He had compassion on the hungry. He had compassion when he saw people sinning. He had compassion when he saw sick people. The Bible continually says Jesus felt sorrow, deep sorrow over people. But only two times in the entire Bible does it ever say that Jesus cried, that he wept. The first time was over the death of Lazarus, when he stood there at that grave with Mary and Martha. Here's the next question. Why was he crying? Why was he crying? Well, he looked out at Jerusalem He saw that mixture of the faces, the masses of humanity, and he suddenly realized the emptiness of their lives. They had not heard or understood the message of peace. They didn't understand the purpose of his coming. In our text again, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming for you. And Jesus cried. I mean they had eyes but they couldn't see. They had ears but they didn't hear. They they missed the whole point of why Jesus was there. I mean I could imagine just thinking as a pastor sometime, you know, going around preaching, let's say preaching just three years and then kind of saying to yourself, but they still don't get it. <laughs> imagine Jesus spending intense time preaching about the kingdom of God and they still didn't. Get it. You know, it's interesting. They were waving palm branches too. We were doing that before as well. We do that as we sing. But it's kind of interesting what waving palm branches really signified. Waving palm branches, uh, they were showing that they expected Jesus to be another warlord. They expected Jesus to do what their great grandparents had seen when the Maccabees came in and drove out their Syrian oppressors and reestablished worship in the temple. You see, by waving those palm branches, they were expecting Jesus to be one more person who would come in like a Rambo and help them overthrow those terrible Romans. They were, by waving those branches, were saying, we're also ready to pick up our swords and shields and go to war if you just ask us. But if you go back in Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I didn't come for that purpose. I came to show you a more excellent way to show you the way of love. Then he goes on and says, it's love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat as well. If someone forces you with him to go uh, one mile, go with him two miles. And I bet you that when people heard that, they looked at Jesus and goes, what? What? I mean, those are nice words, Jesus. But you don't really expect us to love Romans. I mean, only a lunatic would ask you or command you to love Rome. But you know something, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. He said, Rome, with her mighty army, has always known and has known nothing else but the power of the sword. But Rome has never seen the power of love. Show them my love. You see, I think Jesus was crying because the nation of Israel had the opportunity to show Rome something brand new, something different. But they didn't understand Jesus. And because they completely understood why he was there, Jesus wept. Because the opportunity that they had been given was now going to be snatched away from them. And they would never have that opportunity again. I mean, these were God's chosen people. He loved them. He led them through the wilderness. He led them into the promised land. But they did not understand the Messiah when he actually walked in their midst. And because of that, Jesus Wept. Amen. What a contrast. What a contrast. He's sitting there on this beast of burden. He now can look up and he can see that towering temple of God silhouetted against the sky. That gold temple. But beyond that temple, what Jesus could see that day were a few years ahead. In fact, only about 35 more years. He sees the army of Titus surrounding the holy city of Jerusalem. He sees temple stones being taken down one at a time. He sees the entire city of Jerusalem being leveled. He sees bodies in the street and he sees blood running down the the, the gutters and hundreds of thousands of people crying and starving to death while Titus has them surrounded waiting for them to surrender. And why did it happen? It was all because they did not recognize the Messiah when he came. I mean, just imagine how different life would have been if they would have recognized who he really was. How different the history of Israel would be today if they could have only recognized the one who came into their midst riding on a colt. Now, both Matthew and Luke tell us that sometimes earlier... Jesus looked down upon the city and it cried out. And I remember preaching about this maybe a month ago. He said, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have loved to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You know, today, I kind of picture us like Jerusalem. And I picture us now in the presence of Jesus. And you know we are in the presence of Jesus. Wherever two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. If Jesus were standing here and he looked at you, what would he find when he looked at you? Into your eyes, into your heart, into your soul. Would he just see a bunch of people who are so busy doing stuff? That they never bother to consider doing what's eternally important? Would he see people who actually say, no, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God sent into this world to suffer, to die, to rise again? Or would he just find people who are merely fans of Jesus, but not really followers of Jesus? When Jesus looks at our lives, would He turn and would He weep? Would He weep because of what He sees? That's a sobering thought. What would Jesus do if He looked at us? That's the downside of the law, isn't it? The downside of the law is that all He would see is poor, miserable sinners. Sad place to be. You want some good news? I give you some good news. Are you a Christ follower? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one that God sent into this world, born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and then rose again from the grave to save you from your sins, to save you from Satan and to give you everlasting life and to forgive every rotten stinking thing you've ever done? <laughs> then you can shout Hosanna. I heard a few. The sheep are bleeding on this side. See, there's a big difference between Jesus looking at us and saying, and he's going to say to some people, you you use my name a lot, but I don't know you. But what a joy it is. I mean, what an absolute joy it is. And what a joy it will be someday to stand in the presence of God and hear him say, Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. See, friends, when we sing Hosanna, we need to make it very personal. It needs to be our praise and our confidence. See, the Son of God has come. The Son of David has come. He saved us from our guilt. He saved us from our fear. He saved us from our hopelessness. I mean, salvation belongs to God and to the Son. Hosanna! Save us! Help us! But at the same time, Hosanna! Thank you for coming. Thank you for saving us. Hosanna to you in the highest.